Hello and welcome to episode 356 of The Crate and Crowbar. My name is Chris Thurston and joining me tonight on the 3rd of February 2021 are Alex Wiltshire. Hello. Graham Smith. Hello. And Tom Senior. Good day. Wow, a little change of energy there. Went from sultry to Australian in the space <laughs> of a few seconds. Are you saying an Australian can't be sultry? That's absolutely not what I'm saying. How dare you put those words in my mouth? <laughs> Good. I'm just trying to avoid getting in trouble with the Australians. But what are they going to do right now? No one's traveling anywhere. So <laughs> what would they ever be able to do? I don't want to answer that either. Stop. Tra- this entrapment has to end yeah. here, Alex. Apples. That's all right. Uh, we actually have, and it's only taken a month into this year, uh, some video game news, some internet video game news. Would you like to discuss it? Yeah, I love news. Yeah, let's do it. Cool. Graham? Hello. Okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Just checking. Just checking. Uh, so uh, at the top of the news um, is the news that uh, Google are shuttering their in-house game development for Stadia in order to, uh, I think their words were focus on it, focus on the kind of cloud gaming live service element. Um, this doesn't mean the the end of Stadia necessarily, obviously, uh, but it is a fairly humbling flow to Google's ambitions for sort of stepping into that video game land. And like many big West Coast tech companies before them, they have demonstrated that making game hard to do. <laughs> it's it doesn't feel like they're giving it a very big crack of the old um what is it crack of the whip crack of the something crack of mm. the crack, because um when they launched Stadia, I the the game studio had only been open for a little bit because it was kind of spinning up when I wrote a preview about it when mm. I talked to Jade Raymond who was head of the studios head of the yeah, head of the studio, Google Studios. Um, uh, and I was really surprised that they were so behind because because Stadia had all these or has all these special features to it that require specific programming that allow, I don't know, streamers to invite people into their games and infect mm. them. And, and there are loads of things that it can do which are outside of purely streaming a game to your, to your TV, whatever. Um, and they seem to me to to be really imp- it was seem to be really important for Google to to trailblaze those features to show that they're good to capture people's minds and, and, and imaginations and and then kind of make this 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 um, platform you know unique and interesting like and, and the timing of this is kind of surprising for me as well that um, so Amazon's Luna. Uh, is out in the US now and presumably edging towards a worldwide release. And Luna is really similar to Stadia, like, you know, in the sense that um, it's also made by this internet giant. So Google's advantage of its kind of data centers being around the world and its experience with shunting lots of data around, you know, that's something that that, that uh, Amazon shares. And um, and it has lots of the sort of same kinds of sort of streamery sort of features. Google has YouTube, um, Amazon has um, Twitch, and 
just at the moment when kind of Amazon's studio game studios are kind of sort of doing little farts into the air, uh, suddenly <laughs> fucking um, Google does the same thing. It's bizarre. What kind of disruption is that? <laughs> Turns out disruption is something people don't want to happen. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the the underlying thing, and I, I, I wary of kind of rubbing my hands together with glee too much with this, but like um, because I think there's some there's some element here that I crave um, to see, which is that making a successful game, making a anything creative. Uh, it has to be, I think, more than a, a list of features or a list of technical accomplishments. Um, there's a limit to which any game can be wholly directed by data. There's a limit to which any kind of entertainment can be directed that way. And I think whenever a company sort of steps into these waters and like is completely repelled by that fact, because you know, the the I guess the defining characteristic of a lot of these these big tech companies is they believe and have been proven true in other industries that data can do, you know, the, the data they have on their audience can allow them to succeed in almost any space kind of accept this one. And it's almost like emotionally important to me that we have this, <laughs> like there's this territory. You can't, yeah. It's this territory that you can't brute force. Like you can't, you can, you can come up with a cool list of features, point them at an audience, but it's not going to make it, it's not going to work. It's like laying out body parts on a slab and expecting it to come to life like games if there's anything that defines games as technology for me it's that like yes they're tech but they're always more than the sum of their parts even when they're bad and um there's there's something i think kind of like uh either like a, the end of a hot like the catharsis at the end of a horror movie about watching big tech companies be unable to pull this off because that there isn't that spark um I assume. I don't know if that's necessarily the case in Google's case. It could be a strategic repositioning. You'll never extract it from the um, PR. But it does seem to be a, a lesson that is slow to sink in, but kind of mm, there's something delicious about watching it happen every time it does. And obviously, you know, I don't I don't wish like, you know, that the kind of the 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 poor consequences of this on anyone. It's just that I think big companies need to learn that you can't just make a game, right? You can't just sort of pull something from nowhere. You have, to, and it can't just be a response to what the algorithm is telling you. It has to come from a place of genuine kind of create a genuine creative urge of some kind. And it can't just be sort of like muscle. It just can't be just you can't just throw money at it, like you know, mm. sort of. You can't sure? even buy talent and just make them work. I mean, that's that's something that both Amazon and Google have shown. You know, they had good talent, really experienced people, but mm. yeah. I think, I mean, that, that's the part I sort of disagree with because you yeah. can just throw money at it. You just go buy existing developers that are already making things and get them to keep mm. making their thing. But now now you make them put, put your thing inside their thing. Like the failure of Google and Amazon doesn't sound that different to me than the failures that both Microsoft and Sony have experienced over the last 15 years, and that these are large tech companies with a lot of internally competing priorities, and they they don't want to make games for their own sake. They want to use games to leverage 
some opportunity in some other market or with some piece of tech that they've got. So like Amazon wanting to do games because they want it to be an advert for Amazon web services. And so their games have to have 10,000 players in a single server or Google having all, all these, um, you know, server networks all around the world. And so they want to do cloud computing and they've got YouTube. And so the games have to have YouTube integration. It doesn't sound any different to me than Microsoft mandating for years that game developers have to put Kinect support in their game, have to put Smart Glass support in their game, or Sony for that matter, mandating that their developers have to put games on Blu-ray or on fucking, what was it, UMDs mm. on, uh, for the Vita and films now are going to come out in UMDs because Sony make a lot of money by owning proprietary platforms and making everyone rebuy media that they already own on that new platform if they can turn it into the dominant thing. And sometimes it works for them and they make a ton of money and all different divisions of the business are very happy and sometimes it doesn't and it gets in the way of game developers that just want to make games and want to have good tools to make games so like i'm kind of i'm like i'm glad that google and amazon can't just come in and do it themselves but then at the same time it's comforting in a way that their failure feels very of games to me i think I think the I don't disagree with any of that. I do think that the model isn't simply to buy a studio, though, because that's exactly what Amazon did do to a greater or lesser extent, particularly in some of the cases. And so that didn't work uh, or hasn't yet would be a maybe more diplomatic way of putting it. Um, and I think, you know, top down kind of uh, like ulterior motives from, from management leading games, obviously, as a track record of not working. I would say, however, that like there is a common thread, I think, among the big tech companies of like, um, I think they are led by technology to a greater, de- led by ulterior, ulterior aims, but also the need to push other kinds of technology to a greater degree than Sony and Microsoft work. Because I think you can identify, you can sort of identify that like Microsoft's approach and Sony's approach survived in the long term because it was kind of multilateral. Like they were pushing Connect on a lot of things, but also other parts of that company and other studios, satellite studios, were off doing other things at the same time. Um, and I think the there's a kind of monolithic approach that both Amazon and Google have taken that is the reason it's it's led to this kind of kind of withdrawal from that territory rather than simply like well, that didn't work. Thank God we still got Halo, like which might have been the case 10, 15 years ago for Microsoft, say. Yeah. I think like there's also the the fact that like making games is very different to the things that the, those two companies traditionally shift. Like you can't measure the success of a game or the, you know, the effectiveness of a game, you know, as you go mm. along in the same way that you can, you know, the, the kind of the technological products that they are used to making. And if they apply any of what they've learned over the years and years that they've been in operation, uh, you know, it's not going to give them the answers that they're going to want. You can't measure this stuff. You know, games generally shit until you ship. Yeah. Yeah. Well, games are impossible to meaningfully test until they're almost done, basically. Yeah. Like, to, to a greater or lesser extent, obviously you can, you can test certain things, but it's kind of like one of the biggest challenges of that form. And I, I do think... Um, there's a, a bottom line, which is that like they, 
a, a game is not an engineering problem and players needs don't have don't universally have engineering solutions and that i think i don't i don't think this is exclusive to those companies i think you hit these problems in in, in game companies as well um but the where that particular kind of strain of tech culture hits games i think creates all these really interesting and fairly unique problems because people would love to be able to solve it but it's like entertainment is not a solvable problem yeah. like it's a, you know no one um and and often when companies can't perceive something as anything other than a problem to solve which is very common to that culture i think you end up with these sort of like big non-starters like high profile non-starters yeah yeah I'm trying to think of a segue here. Yeah, I there is one here. I'm sure there is. <laughs> I'm sure there is. So from a uh, thing that makes me feel stuff to stuff that makes me feel things. Um, <laughs> Mass Effect. Oh. Mass Effect. Let's talk about Mass Effect. Um, so. Uh, Speaking mm-hmm. of studios struggling to make games because they're being hamstrung by technical <laughs> issues with their engines uh, and a demand <laughs> yeah and a demand to seize on recent trends in the games industry led by nothing other than a desire to also be in a space that's fully occupied and catered to it's bioware everybody um <laughs> yeah okay fine there was an open door there i just needed to step through it um so uh, they already announced this, but the Mass Effect Legendary Edition is going to be out in early May, and they released some details. This is a, a remaster of the original trilogy of Mass Effect games, um, minus Mass Effect 3's multiplayer mode, which isn't going to feature, which is a shame, because it's genuinely good. Um, you and I played a lot of that, time back in oh, the day. Oh, yes. It was like, brilliant. Extremely back in the day. <laughs> That's a long time ago. Um, but yeah, they released a bunch of details, so it's been... Um, there's been a sort of like a polish, you know, job done on the entire uh, trilogy. It's coming with all of the expansions and DLC that were released over the years, with the exception of one, um, Pinnacle Station, which was Mass Effect 1's first story DLC, which isn't coming out because the files are broken. <laughs> <laughs> they lost it. They lost the news. That's um, so good. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, it sounds... Uh, I, I don't know. I'll want to pass the kind of conch around here and get a kind of gut check on. Uh, do you want this, Tom? Yes, 100%. I'm so ready to go back to Mass Effect and play it for 100 hours and uh, meet all those characters and mm. experience those stories and see how it's kind of to enjoy it, but also to see how it's aged and also to kind of get a flavor of old school Bioware RPG storytelling. Um, which I think was yeah. rich in that series. Uh, and that's something I've missed from like Anthem, even though I, I really wanted Anthem to be good. Um, yeah, Graham, you, Graham you, you, you never played Mass Effect, did you? I played the first two hours of Mass Effect 1 three times. <laughs> I just mm. got bored <laughs> and gave up every time. And so like, I do want this anyway, though, because the reason I keep trying is because I'm pretty sure if I can get into it, then I will be very into it. And so... Like, I was partly hoping that, you know, maybe they would go back to Mass Effect 1 and tweak it a bit and bring in some of the stuff that people say was better in Mass Effect 2. I completely understand why they wouldn't do that, though. So instead, what I'm mostly looking forward to is just 
hey, Mass Effect is going to be part of the cultural conversation and current again, in a way, that might compel me to play it and keep with it so I can take you part in those conversations. Again. Yeah, basically, I want to be part of the conversations, <laughs> which, you know, I, I missed first time around. I was always trying to play it two or three years after everyone else I knew had already played it and loved it and had that experience and moved on. See, I, I had the opposite realisation where I realised watching the trailer that I do want this and I desperately miss that series, which I loved so much. And this is almost the right time for it because it's a great time to be sort of re-immersed in, in something like that. That's so kind of, of you know, for me, of a very fond set of memories and something I was very attached to. I am desperate to not see anyone talk about it ever. <laughs> maybe even including myself right now like i i at the moment that trailer came out and i i i you know checked twitter and i could see like people having opinions innocuous opinion like something in me started to like bodily like reject this whole enterprise uh like twitter the game everything because i just i don't i don't want that i don't want the takes i don't i don't want that but it'll happen and I might have to just bury myself even deeper in Mass Effect to avoid them. <laughs> That's a good solution. I think that, so over the course of the original Mass Effect series, uh, the capital T, capital D, the discourse uh, that we know from like Twitter and uh, internet forums now seem to develop over the course of that saga until in the end, it seemed to be quite a destructive force <laughs> for Mass Effect right. 3 in particular. And yeah, so it's kind of, I feel like I feel that the poison in the well there. I think. I, yeah, need to, like, I need to clarify. I don't want the Twitter takes and conversations. <laughs> I need to distance myself from the, any thought that I might be interested in Twitter discourse. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it would be nice to talk about it with the three of you and Marsh and Tom F. Those are the only people. <laughs> That's right. It. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But no, like Tom's, Tom's got a good point, which is like the Mass Effect Three backlash um, was like I think one of the kind of that was 2012 and that was one of the kind of the tremors that would ultimately lead to all of the shit that happened in 2014 2015 it was when a lot of the bad actors that emerged you know there's a there's a through line from the gamers with a capital g kind of revolting over the ending of that game to every through every kind of fucking awful kind of chan adjacent internet disaster that's happened since uh not like a linear progression of interrelated events just the same a lot of the same people a lot of the same themes and so i think for me there's like if if this can take me back to 2007 and i'm like at home during my uni break and mass effect is the thing i do to kind of like sink up slink away from you know that side of my life for a while amazing if it if it takes me back to 2014 and the hot take zone and i'm just getting into games journalism and everyone's fucking angry all the time about space then i don't know i don't know if i want to go back actually i do i do know i do <laughs> i think the mass effect 3 thing was um kind of one of those moments where those communities learned how to actually organize successfully and yeah uh, the fact they were validated has definitely set a certain um uh example for events that followed i think it is yeah yes it was it was uh, a clear instance of the kind of successful bullying of a studio and like by successful what i mean is like the publisher came in and changes were made and it yeah 
sucks. But yeah. I love that world and watching that trailer again i did mm. have like oh god like i do still really care about that yeah. universe and, and like the course. characters and everything mm. alex do you i don't know if, i don't think i've ever spoken to you about whether you are a mass effect carer uh i don't care <laughs> <laughs> i am um, I, I played uh i played two and three maybe about three years ago four years ago and it was fine it was fine and that's all I've kind of already got really got from it. I, I yeah, I think that I was a, a victim of uh, like this is incredible, and it wasn't to me. It felt, uh, but then I think yeah, I think it was uh, yeah. I think if I'd played at the time, I think I'd have had a different perception because because uh, it was RPGs of their time, which tended not you know. I think the RPG today has changed. I think their expectations are that it's open world um, or it's incredibly detailed and it's kind of viewed from the top, you know, like it's a mm. Baldur's Gate sort of absurdly detailed sort of thing or it's this sort of immersive world sort of thing. Um, and I think that's the attitude that I took into playing it. So, you know, the the characters, yeah, whatever. I. So I, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I do think the uh, the Mass Effect series made RPGs glamorous in a way that they weren't before. Yes. I mean, Drag Dragon Age was, but uh, particularly, uh, I, mean, I talk about even just small things like lens flare and like shots over the shoulder while discussing things, uh, being able mm. to interrupt, renegade interrupts and sort of create these cinematic moments. And cinematic is obviously over, massively overused in the industry, but it was like it was like, oh, look at this cool spaceship coming into dock. I love that thing. I, I, I'm the pilot of it, and it kind of brought. Uh, it kind of didn't feel. It's very nerdy, but it was less nerdy than, for example, Baldur's Gate or something. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. Well, it it sort of it felt like the kind of the promise of an interactive movie. Really, I think. Yes. Like even the first game, which is by far more of an RPG than its sequels. I think one thing they've said is that they've tried to like unify the controls and tighten up game balance and fix some stuff, but they've not tried to redesign Mass Effect One. Like it will remain the kind of slightly more kind of RPG uh game of the three um but even you know you're absolutely right tom like it was like this substantially sexier like and i don't mean that just because that you can see a, a boob or a side of a boob but because or a bum occasionally but because like it felt like watching a sci-fi tv show um with you meaningfully in charge and that hadn't been done even that the old republic had such strong rpg roots that felt mm. more like a Baldur's gate or something like that and I do think I do think the the positive side of its community impact I think is is the the way that it kind of opened up the door for people to to sort of see mainstream games in the same light that they would have like size CTV and get invested in the same way that they otherwise might get invested in other fandoms. Like I I can't remember maybe it's just my lens and I could easily be wrong, but I can't really remember kind of like diverse fandoms attaching themselves so too much to the games that I was seeing yeah. prior to Mass Effect. Yeah. And like, the, and, and even Dragon Age didn't quite catch quite the same way. I think I would argue even until Inquisition, which had the same effect. And so, you know, it'll be interesting to see it come back. And I'm, I'm really interested actually to see what another, a new generation makes of it because 
as much as I hate to say it, it has almost been 10 years since Mass Effect 3, which is crazy to me. Mm-hmm. Uh... And yeah, yeah, it's 10 years next year. So, I mean, obviously it's eight, we're 18 months off it being 10 years, but still. And like, that means that there is meaningfully like a generation of young people who weren't really of an age to play it when it came out who now are. And I'd be really like, What's it going to mean to the Zoomers? That's my question. And it'd be interesting because there hasn't been anything like it, really. Um, I can't, uh, uh, you know, I can't really think of another series that's done what it's done and done it consistently across like a big saga like that. I'll be interested if it creates demand for for more games like that because like, I think that's probably one of the things people wanted from Cyberpunk and haven't quite got because of its technical issues. So... Yeah, maybe The Witcher would be the only only other thing that's really captured people in quite the same way. We'll never we'll never know. If only, if only we could talk to the Zoomers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, regrettably, though. visit TikTok.com forward slash Creighton Crowbar, where we will attempt to talk. To... Imagine how rubbish our TikTok account would be. <laughs> it would be so shit. It would be so shit. Oh God, no one wants that. No, that's the it's... least. Is... It's the least desirable product I can imagine. Um, I, I would watch Marsh doing TikTok dances. I would, <laughs> I would like to subscribe. Uh, I'd, I'd watch him scowling at bad games. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the abyss. I can, I can sense it in there as well. I'd love to encounter it. Um, <laughs> Uh, I did uh, like the um, some of the the graphical updates for for Mass Effect Two look pretty nice actually. It's going to be interesting to see what they've done with it. Like, they, it does kind of look like they've upscaled everything using an AI and added ch- loads of lens flare, but that is wholly in the spirit of the original yeah. game. Yeah, like yeah. you know, uh, maybe if it if if it, like that if that Mass Effect lens flare gives me like warm nostalgic feelings um, for like the era of like the uh, like the first JJ Abrams Star Trek movie then maybe it will also partly rehabilitate the lens flare, which has been destroyed for me by, among other things, the Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, it's a thing. Quite excited, really. I I just looked back at my notes for this, and my notes for Mass Effect just say, I want this, I do not want to talk about it. So I've already... <laughs> Too late. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, got, like, it, it's just so indicative of the whole thing because it is going to suck you back in again like and they, or you know it yeah hasn't happened already well here's the thing it's coming out of may right so like i you know god knows how long we're all going to be trapped inside god knows how long the situation is going to last but like the monkey's poor curling here for me is like i'm going to be like on a crossroads that day and i'm literally going to have like my vaccine appointment and mass effect will come <laughs> <laughs> I'm free to go outside, but I don't but, want to. But, exactly. It's the opposite of that Twilight Zone episode. Yeah. There's, there's finally not time to play this game. <laughs> <laughs> oh, where were you? Where were you last summer? Uh, well, you know, I don't know what to hope for there, honestly. I hope for a swift and helpless, safe end to this fucking crisis. But also, I want time to play Mass Effect. Uh, <laughs> like man sweating. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, so another game. And a game was announced today. That happens sometimes. Um, they they gone and announced Total War Warhammer 3. Oh, yeah. Yeah, if, if, uh, if it helps, yeah. my note for this just says, I like this. <laughs> yeah. Who else like this? I also like this. I like much. this. 
I don't know anything about Warhammer, but the trailer was nice. Cool. I think I think that Tom Francis is right, though. Uh, mm. Something that has consumed he, well, he's um, never our right. appreciation. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So uh, in the trailer that got released today, uh, it introduces um, because it's it its main storyline is uh, chaos. The mm. the ruinous powers are yeah. the core of it. And um, it, it, the, the trailer introduces um, the four lads uh, that head the ruinous powers. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, it starts with um, Nurgle. On the four lads, those four guys standing outside a, like a all bar one in Coventry in really tight <laughs> <Yeah>. trousers. <laughs> There's the one with the, the maggoty mouth. <laughs> yeah. <Lord> the wings. <laughs> yeah. There's the one with the unhealthy obsession with pornography. <laughs> But then the they get to, to um, fight. They get to they get to cinch, and the voiceover man says something that that none of us can could make out. Like Isn't you've it got deceit? you've got corruption for Nurgle, you've got um, uh, obsession for Slanesh, uh, and then there's rage. Is it rage? It's rage. Rage, rage is the last one. Yeah, rage yeah. is for corn, and then uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, and uh, I think that Tom France is right. I've listened to it again, and um, and I do believe it is. And I've forgotten what it is now. Isn't it like deceit? Isn't it deceit? Disruption. Deceit. <laughs> deceit. Oh, no. Yeah. Which yeah. isn't as strong. It's not as strong as the others. Now, I'm not, I'm not doing down scenes, not at all, but deception, uh, deceit is just not as good as corruption or rage or obsession. I always thought it was more like temptation. No, Thing, no I don't know. that's where you get in the overlap with Slanesh. I'm yeah, so glad yeah. you've challenged me on this. Um, <laughs> the, the, like, uh, yeah, like it's hard because like the other uh, the other one would just be like as you're flying down that like big bird's gullet, it, someone just goes wizards. Like, <laughs> just shouted wizards. <laughs> um, <laughs> wizards. Like, question. More question. <laughs> <laughs> Maggots, <laughs> leggings, <laughs> wizards, <Tight>. Diablo. <laughs> uh, I'm so, like they're so lucky we've not done any of their marketing. <laughs> um, I, I, I really liked that trailer. I, so there's a, there's a bunch of fucking nerdy shit about this, but like. Um, so the the trailer is so the new game is the three factions that they're talking about so far are like the four chaos gods, which are four individual factions, which is cool. They've not been previously in Total War. Yeah. Um, Kislev, which is old world fantasy Russia, which is pre it, it's in the current games. It's just like a different flavor of the empire, but they're getting their own thing. And um, Cafe, which will be interesting to see how they handle, which is yeah uh, Warhammer's take on China which has never been shown before, as far as I know. Like, it's only ever been gestured at. And I think I think there was some... There's some art going back a long way, but it's very, very old and very, very questionable at this point. And so oh, it's going to be really interesting to see what they do with that. Um, but the cool thing is Games Workshop... Main Games Workshop is working on a new miniatures game for the old world. And these those factions... Kislev, well, Kislev particularly... <laughs> was already mentioned by them as one of the things that they've kind of been designing for that. So I think, I think, I think this is the first time a new miniatures range has kind of been co-developed yeah. in a game and in the miniatures design studio. Like, I don't know that the timelines at hundred percent line up, but like this trailer was the first time they've shown things that 
they've also like shown things in sort of like you know a fully rendered way that have only previously been regular warhammer concept art if that makes sense yeah and like yeah, I, was, I watched an interview with um with uh the the concept artist whose name i've forgotten mm. long time um games workshop um artist and uh and sort of the studio head and they were or like i don't know department head or something and it's clear that they have been instrumental in all this stuff it's not just been oh we'll just give it to the game studio cool to see the high screen of kislev get to have her elsa from frozen moment while fighting diablo <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i really liked it. the thing I, I really liked i really liked is it starts with like this kind of sea shanty thing a little bit worried there that they were jumping on a bandwagon Again, the four dudes, like it comes back to the four dudes. Um, uh, and then it kind of transitions in, it, in the middle of the trailer when like the Kislevites are kind of marching toward it becomes orchestral. And then the moment the first like metal hoof of a blood crusher of corn appears on screen, an electric guitar, a heavily distorted <laughs> electric guitar kicks in. And that is a, the completely correct decision because like, <laughs> Uh, a coward would be like, well, let's keep it classy and stick with the kind of orchestral thing. You know, maybe we'll get like a Zimmer womp in there somewhere. Um, you know, um, but no, they're like, no, we can't. We literally, it's not legal to show like Realm of Chaos era cornate demons and not have like a big sudden, completely anachronistic prang of an electric guitar. I thought they did that very well. Yeah, they get it. They definitely get it. And that, as a fan of the genre, not genre, uh, the whole Warhammer thing. Uh, I'm very excited about As it. As a fan of the thing. Mm. <laughs> fan of the thing. I think the thing might be the thing. There's, um, do you know what it kind of reminds me of? It has the same energy, but in a completely different way. So, like, not to go on about this, but, like, fantasy games usually fuck up putting electric guitars in their trailers. That's the theory, right? <laughs> do you remember the Dungeons & Dragons Dark Alliance trailer from, like, the Game Awards the year before last? Which was the one where, like, it was like heavy metal soundtrack, elves and dwarves, and here and, and like, you know, uh, dark, uh, what are they called? Drow fighting like zombies in the snow. It was the same sort of like ice war vibe as the Warhammer trailer, but it was filmed as if there were like GoPros on the end of the weapons <laughs> to like a metal song. It was really fucking weird. It was like, a trailer made by someone who the only video they had ever seen was like a Gary's Mod shit post. <laughs> Anyone remember this? No, not just no. I didn't see it, but I'm going to watch it right after this <laughs> because it had the same energy, and it was the folly that dates back to the first Dragon Age game of like putting a heavy metal song in your fantasy setting and thinking that's going to make it cool, and it always makes it like achingly lame. Mm. Um, and I always wanted to credit Total Warhammer for having a bloodthirster that screams, and it sounds like he's plugged into an amp. Um, and it worked for me. I was very yeah. excited by it. I watched it again. Agreed. And that, this has the thumbs up from my boy as well. Who um, Excellent. Yeah, and that's the important thing, because he is Generation... Hang on, what were we talking about? Z. He'd be, he'd be young Gen Z. He's a Zoomer, Zoomer right? He's yeah. a Zoomer. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we're all Zoomers now, in the age of fucking remote... I don't know. No, we're not. <laughs> uh let's should we talk about what we've been playing yeah let's do it graham hello do you want to talk about a game you've been playing yeah talk about gonna talk about two games cool a, co- 
because they're quite small little things. I've been playing puzzle games. Um, puzzle games to numb um, is what I've been playing. Uh, the first of which is a lovely little soccer band called Dungeon and Puzzles, which I feel slightly ill-equipped to talk about because I haven't played as many of these games as I feel like some of you guys have. There's always lots of conversations in our Discord about various puzzle games, and I know there are probably 300 puzzle script games a lot like this that I that I have not played. Um, but Dungeon and Puzzles is it's a soccer band about fighting through dungeons and so it's basically adding combat to the puzzles the idea is each level is a little dungeon scene or your little your little warrior and there are monsters dotted around the, the dungeon and there will be a couple of items maybe like a sword maybe a sword and a bow and arrow and then there's the exit and what you need to do is you need to kill all the guys and then get out of the exit the catch is if you push in a direction you keep moving until you hit something basically until you bump into a wall or an enemy and so you can you can quite easily whiz around because the enemies don't fight back they never hit you they never move they just stay in place you can whiz around you can kill them all and then you can find that you can't get out the exit door because you're not aligned with the exit door all you can do is just kind of like slide yourself past the front of it infinitely um, until you undo or restart so the challenge then is to use the enemies to position yourself such and kill them in the correct order that you can then shoot out the exit at the end but then each item it introduces complicates that. So you start off with the with the sword. You have to be in an adjacent tile to kill an enemy. You shoot over to him, bump into him, hit him, he disappears. Then shoot onto the next enemy. Bow and arrow, you can fire an arrow, obviously, to kill an enemy at range, which then drops the arrow on the floor next to where they were. And then that becomes an obstacle now that you can walk over to and it will stop you in your path. And so the puzzles start to become about, okay, what order do I kill these guys in? Which ones do I use the sword on? Which ones do I use the bow and arrow on? And where do I need that arrow to fall so that I can then use it as an obstacle to stop myself and get out the exit? Then it introduces other things. So like you can push enemies, you can pull enemies, that sort of stuff. And it's it's really neat. It's clever. It costs like, I don't know, five pounds or something like that. Mm. And we talked recently as well about the pleasure of making of playing a game which you can tell it was well produced. Like well produced mm. in the sense of a producer with a budget and a spreadsheet did a good mm. job scoping that game. And this is that because it's made almost entirely by one person and almost entirely using a tile set that you can buy for ten dollars from itch.io and mm. then use in your games and so like it's it's lightly modified they've there's a sprite artist that's done some work to tweak those tiles but it by and large just looks like this thing you can go buy for ten dollars but it was like the tile set is designed for a kind of a turn-based or real-time combat game um but this guy has made a, a a really clever neat puzzle game out of it that i highly recommend that's really cool. Sounds really nice. Does okay. it have that sort of cohesiveness look? It does. It's a lovely tile set, actually. Like, it looks fantastic. Like, you don't look at it and think, <laughs> oh, this is a thing you buy for 
ten dollars <laughs> and then you can use a new game it looks like it's been made specifically for this game and there's there's like over a hundred levels i think or something like that and there's a bunch of secret levels because there's this kind of like over map that you're you're unlocking rooms in as you're moving through it and um you're judged on levels not just on whether you complete them but you can then also complete them under a certain number of moves and if you master a certain number of levels that will then unlock other secret levels and that sort of stuff so it's got a kind of nice meta layer to it and a reason to go back to levels it feels like a really complete package basically around the crazy thing and it's 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 the kind of puzzle game that i'm finding myself playing a lot of over the last year and like i say puzzle games to numb because there are there are puzzle games which tax my brain and that turns out not to be what i really mm. want what i want <laughs> is picross basically i want a puzzle that has two to four rules that you then apply endlessly over a huge number of levels in a way that makes the time go pleasantly while I am listening to a podcast or waiting to go to bed. (laughs) 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 Whatever whatever the day may bring. Um, And so like Dungeon and Puzzles has been pretty good for that, but there's an, an even better one I've been playing, which is called Hexseed. I, mm. I came across this because it was in it was in the Steam bestsellers list one day, and then a couple of streamers on Twitch I watch were playing it. And the reason it was doing so well on the Steam bestsellers list is because it's actually free. It's a free-to-play game. Um, in fact, it's just really it's just free, and then they're doing monthly DLC packs with extra levels. But the 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 free version of the game, it took it's got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of levels in it. As like split up into four or five islands. The tutorial island took me, I would say, about four to five hours to complete. And so <laughs> there's a lot there's a lot of free stuff in this game. Um but what it is is it's kinda like Minesweeper but with hexagons. Mm. Where you get uh, a kind of a map it looks like a little hexagonal island. Um, and one of the square, one of the hexagons will have a number in it, which will tell you how many of its adjacent hexagons are dangerous in some ways. Um, and then you click to either clear a hexagon and say, "Hey, that's safe," and reveal the number that's on it, or you right-click to mark it as one of the dangerous ones, and it tells you instantly if you've got it wrong. And you work your way through the level working out hey well this this tile says zero so i know the the three tiles to its right don't have anything dangerous in it so i'll instantly clear all those and that reveals a a a two a two and a one and then you can use that to work out which of the tiles next to those ones are dangerous and so on and so on and so on it then introduces a few twists on that so for example it has walls in it which can block a hexagon from being able to detect essentially whether the tile on the other side is dangerous and so the number that uh, that you're looking at might be inaccurate um, it, there are tiles which you can click on to which tell you the the number of dangerous tiles in a region rather than just adjacent to it um, and so you need to then factor that in with other bits of information in order to work out which tile you can safely clear and so on and so on. But it's really, it's like four or five different mechanics and it's got a lovely pace to it in that you will, um, you'll be staying at a board and you won't be able to see what move you're able to make. 
and you'll be stuck. And I don't think I've ever been stuck for longer than 60 seconds, but it's long enough to make you stop and have to think and scroll around and see where can I make the move and check the information that various tiles are giving you. And then you'll spot the moves you're able to make. And almost always making that move will reveal a piece of information that means that the next move is instantly obvious and without thinking at all you will make the next move and then the next move and then the next move and the next move and you'll make five or six moves in a row spreading across the terrain and and clearing huge swaths of it and then you get stuck again and you slow down and you have to stop to think and i love that pacing basically of bursting forward in fits and starts it's incredibly satisfying to clear the map and it's nice it's like it's very simply cleanly presented game with lovely sound effects as you clear and mark tiles uh, particularly at the end where it colors all the tiles in the order that you discovered them in um, with safe ones turning green and dangerous ones turning red and it's nice to see a replay of your progress through some of these levels get pretty big some of the islands and it's and it and it's got that kind of almost like a, a peggle like reward of as it as the tails turn their color and they all go in the most satisfying way. And I've just been sitting in evenings for hours sometimes playing through levels of this game. Now, like I I describe this as as minesweeper with hexagons. There will be some people. Uh, listening to this probably who might be yelling at the podcast to say sounds like hex elves sounds like hex elves um because hex elves is basically this exact game uh and i had forgotten this despite the fact that hex elves is a game i've played for over 10 hours according to steam back in 2017 i played hex elves infinite and it's great i love hex elves if you'd asked me about hex elves i would have said hex elves is brilliant i love hex elves um but this is what i mean by these being puzzles to numb because the the 10 hours that i spent playing hex cells i have no recollection of them whatsoever <laughs> i know i enjoyed them <laughs> i know i enjoyed them but if you'd asked me what kind of game hex cells was i would have said either it was like slither Slitherlink, which is another one of these kinds of games mm. um or i would have said like sudoku because it's it's numbers on on shapes um but no it's it's minesweeper with hexagons basically uh, and Hexels may well be the better version of this game, but Hexseed is free, and there's hundreds of levels, and I'm having a lot of a, a lot of time passing. I'm having a lot of time passing. I don't even <laughs> want to say fun. I'm having a lot of time passing. You just found one of them cool fugues. I mean, that's what, <laughs> that's what we're all here for. We're here to discuss our favourite cool fugues. It's what we need. It's what we need in this, the year twenty twenty, that will not end. Tom, I think I think I'd like to hear about your cool fugues. <laughs> um, I've been playing the two thousand and two adventure game Siberia. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> and you may ask why, and my answer is. So it's a very old school um, adventure game. Uh, the puzzles are terrible. I hate them. Uh, but the world really speaks to me at the moment <laughs> in the sense that uh, it's an utterly deserted wasteland uh, populated only by a few flesh humans and a lot of defunct automatons, automata even. Um, mm. 
and it's a uh, set in deepest, darkest, generic Europe. And who knows? <laughs> Might be Russia. <laughs> Could be anywhere. Uh, Could it not be the... Siberia? Siberia. I'm thinking. Uh, well, it's never. Yeah. Yeah. You make. A, is this the snowy one? <laughs> You're building a good case here, guys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's yeah, yeah. It's spelled different. Um. Uh. It doesn't look like <laughs> Siberia, but it's uh. It's full of actually like beautiful, just kind of, but also quite depressing brown architecture. That is almost like German Expressionist or Gaudi style organic shapes and that kind of thing, um, mm. and you're just kind of traipsing around it, and you're a lawyer called Kate Walker, um, and that is completely irrelevant. Apart from the fact she just walks around, uh, a young ambitious lawyer from New York, this, this cream, uh, steam description says, and yeah, you're on a, a mission to sort of like uh, it's actually it's a very tawdry quest initially in the sense that you're trying to identify who is the true heir to a particular fortune uh but then it goes steadily more and more strange and i actually really like that kind of progression uh i actually really like this about a lot of 2000 ad comics as well where a comic might open up with uh an old man with a white uh, you know big bushy beard going yar i saw her. I saw a shark that no one's ever seen this size before. And then five issues later, you're like, uh, it's changed so much. You're like, wait, where did this start? <laughs> it sort of mm. sucks you in with a kind of, uh, almost like a genre familiarity and then gradually chips away at that and sort of like changes things. And I think it's actually, it's a very effective and incredibly atmospheric game. Uh, even though the puzzles are rubbish. <laughs> so what I'd recommend, it's, um, uh, I'd recommend playing it with walkthrough as I would with like most of these sorts of games. And that's what I've been doing. Uh, I've actually been playing it in the bath, <laughs> which is on, <laughs> wow. on Switch, which is, uh, we've talked about Fugue, <laughs> fugue games. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, 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 like, I go through a bit of a rough patch at the moment. So I'm taking like, do lots of exercise, taking baths in the mornings, that kind of stuff. Uh, and this has been my bath game. <laughs> and at any moment I could drop the Switch and break it forever. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> That's just a, an extra level of just a hint of danger, you know, mm. just yeah, spices it up. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah, lovely background art, really, really good atmosphere. And it's just getting weirder and weirder. And I really like that. And also got like the second game to come as well. They're bundled together. Lovely. Yeah. Was there something else you were playing, Tom? You mentioned there today. was actually. And this was called Gods Will Fall. Um, mm. And this is... What a good name for a game! Mm. You know what you go. You know what you're getting into. You know what you. Well, do you though? Because it sounds like it's gonna like this is this is the shit. That's no, uh, well, is it the God, shit? God's kicked my ass. This is what happened <laughs> repeatedly in this game. Yeah, is it? I, is it not the? It's like the kind of tone, the opposite end of the tonal spectrum from Fall Guys, but fundamentally the same thing. Uh, no, it's utterly different. It's, a, it's an action RPG in sort of like, you know, what you might chiefly call like Diablo Vein, that kind of thing. But you play as eight characters and uh, you're in the overworld picking up items and then you go into various dungeons and each dungeon is occupied by a god. And the god's health bar is actually represented by the, the minions inside the dungeons. For each few minions you kill, you're actually, you're sapping the, the ultimate health bar of the god that you need to face. Um, but what's very funny about it is that you, you play as like these eight characters 
but for some for some reason uh, reasons of honor you have to send them in one at a time into each dungeon hmm. um and if you lose them then you send someone else in and there's almost kind of like a like sunk cost fallacy aspect to it where it's just like you could just walk away from the dungeon and go somewhere else to an easier one but you want to get the guys <laughs> back right like kind yeah. of leave them in there uh i've done stupid stuff like uh just literally just walked off the edge of a cliff by accident and um the game is really punishing so it's not like you know, a lot of games these days will be like oh your character will cling onto the edge if you accidentally go uh you know across a, mm. a threshold um but in this now they're just they're flipping gone that's it <laughs> uh until you actually beat the end boss then you rescue all of your sort of pokemon from uh, from the cave um it's really difficult and the i'd really hate the combat system but i think it's sort of like it's got loads of really good ideas about instead of like building one character building a team and then each sort of extra life being a different character with different skills and uh, different items. That is, uh, that's actually really smart. It looks beautiful mm-hmm. as well. It's got, a, a, it looks like you're sort of like uh, controlling miniatures on a, a gorgeous board. It's, it's really, really, really cool. Mm. Um, What's wrong with the combat system? So it's, it's, it's a very simplistic light attack, heavy attack, dodge system. Um, and if you put you dodge directly into an enemy, you parry, and if you parry, they'll often fall down. In which case, you could do a jump attack, which is great. But there's no like lock on or anything, so the parry is greatly, you know, it depends on where your mouse is or where the stick is when you're actually doing it. Mm. Uh, and that whole thing it just feels like way off to me. Um, and also, like a lot of the characters are very slow and kind of sluggish. Which I don't know. There's there's loads of stuff that's wrong with the movement for me in the game. Um, they can jump, but you can actually have realistic jumps. But I love video games where you have unrealistic jumps, <laughs> where you can kind of sail across gaps and be certain where you're jumping and know where you're going to land. And that's definitely mm. not the case uh, with, with the dungeons in this. And also the dungeons don't have like a particular direction to them. The way that the actual environments are designed, you sort of, I, I've been wandering around them no, with no idea of my endpoint. And just getting trapped and going round and round in circles, um, so yeah, it's, it's like it feels. Uh, it just needs, yeah, that all just needs fixing, <laughs> basically. <laughs> uh, but I do, again, I really admire it for trying to do something different with the action RPG format. When was it released? Is it? Good cool. question. Right, I'm going to literally. It says January 2021. So yes, that is. Oh wow! Four that's... days ago. Yeah, it's a contemporary game. Uh, it's Good also God. it's it's twenty quid. Um, so mm. like I think I, I think they're definitely planning to update it. The the animations are fantastic. Um, particularly the sort of characterful when, when they sort of um a hero goes into a cave, the way everyone else sort of cheers them on or welcomes them back is just yeah. I just <laughs> I just I'm like yeah, go everyone yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's there's yeah there's good ideas in here for sure. Um, even if I like can't ultimately recommend it at the moment mm. but well it's, i think it's worth bringing up yeah it's interesting so it's not i just checked the steam page it's not in early access it's out out it's technically so, out yeah. yeah so it'll be interesting to see what they do with it but yeah yeah it's a super cool concept i like the idea mm. of <laughs> spending good adventurers after bad um <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, what i'd recommend if, if anyone does pick this up is um this is a bit hidden away, but always 
uh, read the stories of the characters uh, as they go into dungeons because some of them have particular uh, like beefs with certain gods, and as you send them in and they die, it sort of add, like dynamically adds to their diary. And mm. each time you go back, it's like, and then he ventured into the cave and was never seen again. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, so uh, that that's a big part of the game that I was missing initially that I think is actually a lot of fun and also another great idea the game has. So it's got this sort of little bit of the Hades style sort of storytelling within the kind of roguey like sort of repeated dungeon crawly thing. Yeah, the, the storytelling is, it feels a bit more dynamic because like, it depends on which hero you send into each dungeon as to what happens to you know, if you kill them or mm. if they win, etc., that will create a new diary entry that reflects that. Um, which is, uh, whereas Hades is kind of, it feels like it's much more prescribed. There are things to kind of gradually unlock as your character progresses, but you're just one guy, not eight. And so it's kind of like a little mm. network of stories there, which is really, really nice. Um, uh, it's just, it's a game that I want to see develop and get better and better and like just combat feeling and stuff and movement and it feels it feels quite unfair often to me um but, but if all that stuff was like fixed it'd be like it's genuinely innovative so yeah awesome i like it alex i've been playing a game that feels real nice real nice mm. um it's called olia um, which I think is the right way to pronounce it because it's spelled O-L-I-G-A-A. So it could be Olija, but in the game I hear someone say Olija. So uh, that's what I'm going with. Um, cool. It's like a, have you seen it? Have you, have you lot seen it? No. no. I've seen it. Yeah, I've, I've watched some of it being played. It's so, a Devolver, Devolver joint, isn't it? It is, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. So it's sort of, it's a <laughs> pixel um, platformer action adventure game. Um, in which you are a sad sailor, whaler, mm. no less, a sad whaler who's been um, marooned after after um, attacking a big whale, uh, gets caught up in a big stormy thing, um, and finds uh, himself and his crew um, uh, marooned on a weird island called Terraphage uh, in a strange sea, um, and uh, you 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 can't escape uh something is holding you back in this area um and uh the uh, soon after you find uh, you go into a dungeony thing and you find a, a magic harpoon uh which is which is like the the game's cool gimmick um the harpoon is a way of uh, grappling to stuff fundamentally um it'll it'll kind of harpoon onto enemies and it will also harpoon onto these kind of weird black tentacle things that you'll see attached to um uh, walls and ceilings and things um so you you harpoon in that direction and then you hold in that direction and then you press the harpoon button again and you'll teleport there do a little slash on if it's an enemy um uh and that's like the the thing to the to the combat and the way to that you you uh, traverse the levels and there are loads of puzzles as well uh, in these preset levels um, and all of that feels real good um, it's sort of like the combat is all about zipping in going in for a quick sort of four hit combo and then zipping back out again um, and sort of allowing you using the uh, the harpoon to 
kind of target the most dangerous enemies in a, in a, in a fight. So the ones that have melee, uh, sorry, the, the attack you with ranged weapons or the one that kind of keeps also teleporting around or, you know, or whatever. It's, um, it's sort of, it's smart like that. Like the combat isn't particularly complicated and actually have sort of quite an easy game. Um, and in fact, it's also quite a short game. Like it, my prey through took five hours and I think other people have played it saying five, six hours. So it's very short and I don't think it fully explores all the things that it could do because the carpoon is a, is a really great mechanic and um, you get these items during the storyline which kind of expand on that. Um, I kind of won't explain them because they're kind of spoilery, but, but there's one um, item you get very close to the end actually which kind of blows open this whole kind of teleportation sort of concept. And, um, and then it's, then it's the end of the game. So you don't really mm. explore it. It doesn't feel like you really explore it that deeply. Um, uh, but it was made, the whole game was made by pretty much just one person. Who's this um, guy called Thomas Olson. Um, and um, who did, who done the music, he done the graphics, he done the programming, he done the design, <laughs> He'd done everything and like everything is a really high standard like the music is really good like the sort of these kind of smoky kind of saxophone sort of tones um which is a real kind of interesting clash with the setting which is like weird dark souls east sort of thing sort of your this kind of set probably 19th century you're a kind of european -y type you're in this kind of eastern world um uh so the kind of this this saxophone's kind of strange but very fitting somehow kind of trumpets and kind of but then these really bassy drums kind of not loud bass rumbling kind of subtle bass drums which are kind of threatening and it's really good and the sound effects are really good as well like it's sort of really meaty uh really uh hit you know, make the, the combat really hit home, sort of the, you know where the harpoon is because you've, you can hear it, you can just sense it, you know, you just know what you're doing because of the sound effects. Yeah. It's a really good game. Um, but yeah, as I said, it's over too soon. Um, and th there is, there's one thing about it that I find a little bit up unsettling though, I am, which is kind of, it definitely has a real set. Well, it definitely, I felt that it had a sense of kind of Orientalism to it. Mm. Um, you're in this Eastern world. You're kind of European. Everything is designed to be strange and not terribly welcoming. And um, there is sort of the, the the game is named after a character, a lady Olia, who is the head of this clan of um, of uh, non monster um inhabitants of these islands that you're exploring um who is maybe on your side and maybe isn't and maybe she'll help you and maybe she won't and and that idea of an eastern character that kind of you're kind of hankering after like she becomes the love interest frankly and there's a kind of awkward scene where you uh force her to kiss you kind of thing where you're sort of sort of fighting her it turns out of course that she's also a badass fighter and you kind of force her back both parrying kind of um blows of your weapons um over several screens of of of, of kind of terrain 
and until you eventually kind of kiss her and all this stuff came across to me as a little bit kind of weird orientalism um and like mm. and i'm aware that that um thomas Hodgson lives uh in japan and um where he moved to be with his wife um and apparently it kind of the storyline is meant to kind of represent his experiences of living in a in a kind of a culture that he wasn't you know born within and things but as an outsider yeah doesn't quite got play quite right to me but um that aside it's a high quality game um and at the price that is which i don't actually know actually, probably 15 quid i'm not sure actually we'll look it up but um like you know it's everything that it sets out to do it really nails so you know, in that sense it's a really kind of good value i think despite its short length yeah Aaliyah, a good game hmm what you've been playing chris I've been on holiday in Hitman 3. So, uh, play, so Hitman for me, um, and I'm glad to, to sort of feel weird getting to talk about this on a podcast before Tom Francis has had a chance to, because I do want to kind of foreground this by saying like, I'm by no means like an expert Hitman. Um, <clears throat> but I did, I did sort of find my rhythm with the series or the new series of which this is the final part last year and i think i spoke about this on the podcast at the time when it around may i think april may last year i played through hitman one and two all of the levels um as a real and i found it a really really nice game to sink into uh while locked at home because uh, i can understand completely why um i have the james bond license now like those games these games are fundamentally like a combination of like probably like i think certainly like the best ongoing stealth series on PC at the moment, but also like a big travelogue of spectacularly realized, hyper real, real world locations um, in the same way that it's sort of expected of any Bond movie that nothing ever be set in a dull place. It's always, you know, a festival day at a beautiful part of the world when something needs to be chased or blown up. And, um, there are there are kind of amazing little escapes in that way and this one is too and um so i've I finished it i've played all the way through it and that first pass i did in the way that i typically do the new hitman games and i kind of recommend it um particularly as i've seen quite a few people kind of get into the series with this one which is to basically follow the mission stories and the prompts and the kind of relatively sort of straightforward little storylines that lead you through each of these missions. And I don't really worry about saves coming and things at that point, just sort of play it, get a kind of ending I think is cool. And then what I've just started doing is kind of going back and starting to pick apart the first level, uh, which in Hitman 3 is the top of a skyscraper in Dubai. And that it's like the gala opening of a skyscraper there's also an art exhibit there's also a penthouse with lots of things going on there's multiple targets with a specific relationship with each other and a different agendas sort of mingled at the level as there ever is and i think the thing that continually impresses me about this game as it is now kind of understood as like one big game with all three games combined is that like they keep pulling this off they keep creating levels that are like extraordinarily detailed that feel hugely thematically and totally distinct from each other that are 
genuinely exciting to kind of uncover the first time and then exciting to go back and finesse or just tool around in. And like, I know we talk about this game a bunch. I know we talked about it a bunch over the last couple of years. And I know that like it's reviewed very well and it's gotten good attention on social media, particularly this time around. But like, I don't know whether this is just me that's coming to this realization now, but like stepping back from this one, getting to the end of it, I was like, oh yeah, this is definitely one of the best games released on PC in the last decade. Like taking taken all together. Like it definitely is. Like particularly, you know, I, I think obviously the 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 lens of what encompasses a kind of quote unquote PC game has broadened significantly and, and rightly so. But like to to hold it up in the kind of company that it is most familiarly part of, which would basically be the older Hitman games, Deus Ex, Dishonored, all of that stuff. Like it's it's it is it is good on that level and good all the way through and like you know am i going mad here am i the only person who's maybe late to this realization that like over the course of these three games they really have built like probably one of the best stealth sandboxes ever made yeah no, i think it's no. fair yeah I, I think it's fair and i think it's yeah i think it's a similar dawning realization because like I really loved Hitman 1 and I really loved Hitman 2, but over the course of each of those games, you kind of get distracted by thinking, because each level is such a distinct thing, mm. um, you kind of get distracted by, well, like, oh, you know, I really loved the first two levels, and then level three wasn't quite so good, and then level four was amazing, and like appraising the ups and downs of each individual level. But it's only when you kind of step back, because I've been having this conversation with people over the last couple of weeks of like, this is this the best trilogy of any game ever like <laughs> yeah like in terms of just consistency of quality across these three games i think it it's... might be like i don't know i can't think we couldn't think of any other three game series which has managed to maintain its quality so consistently over the three basically yeah. i think i would i would point to mass effect on the basis that like i think that series goes gets better and better as it goes to some extent actually do i think that i've previously said the opposite what am i talking about <laughs> uh, <laughs> um but well i think it, i think it, i think it's a very different journey like i think all actually i put it differently all three of those games have like you know huge qualities and they're all really different to each other and taking an aggregate i think it's quite a meaningful journey i think you're right that like hitman yeah i can't really think of something that's ever been that consistent I did find myself getting towards the end of Hitman 3 where getting to a point where like certain old interactions, part of that AI, part of the stealth engine, part of the sandbox, so familiar to me now from time with that game that they feel like old friends that are still hanging around in a sandbox that has gotten more sophisticated in environments that have got cleverer where they no longer quite fit. And so in a way it's, it's, it's consistency is maybe it's only downfall in that not even downfall, but like, you know, to put it this way, the, the new features added in three in terms of like things that weren't in the previous game are a camera you can point at certain things to hack them. And as far as I can tell, keypads that you have to press the actual individual buttons on. Like that's it. It's like Hit, Hitman 2 added mirrors, you know, like, but the fundamental bones of the thing haven't really changed that much. And I don't think I want them to because all of the soul of that game is in the levels. But there are times where you go like, oh man, this really has just been one long journey with the same set of systems. And I think like the pinnacle for that for me was like in one mission, um, 
like the universal attractive quality of coins in the Hitman universe is one of its my favorite of its quirks, <laughs> which is like you know I'm like I don't know I'm in this deep secret facility I'm surrounded by high tech equipment I'm hunting a character who's only only cares for technology and only seeks the purity of machine thought oh a coin <laughs> <laughs> someone's killed me with a screwdriver. Uh, like, like there's stuff like that where you start to see the the bones of it. But also, there's something really satisfying about taking all of those little skills and um, taking them from scenario to scenario. And I think so. This set of levels, which probably should be taken on its own grouping, um, is it's it's the shortest of the three. Um, it's like I think all of them have like a half level. In, in Hitman, in the first one, it was the ICA training facility at the start, which is in all three games, but like, isn't a doesn't feel like a full level really. Um, in uh, in the second game, it's the first level, the New Zealand level, which is a small, very very small level. It's beautiful, but it's 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 a mini level by their standards. Yeah. And this game also has uh, three, also has a, a mini level, um, which is definitely the most limited of, of all, any of the mini levels. And on top of that, it only has like five main levels where I think Hitman 2 had seven and the first one had six. So it's the smallest set. And they're also the, they're also smaller, I think, on the whole. They're smaller and more detailed and quite contained. Um, but they are all really strong. And one thing I really, really liked about it is there's a mix of like... I don't think there's anything in it that's like as spectacular as like the Miami race from Hitman Two necessarily, but like each of the ideas is is individually really strong, and it has its standout concept episode in which I think everyone will have seen people rambling about this on Twitter probably, um, which is a murder mystery. It's an Agatha Christie murder mystery set in a English mansion, which is great. Like it it doesn't work as a detective game, but I don't think that's what Hitman is for. Um, the detective mystery side of it is a really entertaining way to go through your first playthrough. And then it's also really interesting to see what happens when you go back to that level. If you don't step into the shoes of the detective, for example, and then there's a detective in the level, like seeing that clockwork kind of fit together is really satisfying. But it also, um, it feels like a send off to everything you've learned over the course of that series in a really, really exciting way. Um, I'm kind of, I'm trying to tiptoe around like, spoilers i guess here and so i probably won't say too much i do desperately want to talk about individual levels but like there's something it does that i think is super cool is it each level plays with like adding something to your kind of like set of to the characters that are helping you or to the kind of framing of the mission adding or removing something that kind of changes the way you interact with Hitman's basic systems. And there's a level where you basically don't have any support and you are in a big kind of busy environment without any of the kind of traditional support that would point you towards things like mission stories and without the ability to plan too much in advance. And you have quite a few targets in that environment. And, but all of those things are still there. Uh, in terms of opportunities to plan or stories to discover or interactions to discover. And it sort of trusts you that at that point, you know how to do this. Like you can 
identify those opportunities, experiment, figure things out, and sort of conquer that environment in a really, really satisfying way. <clears throat> and similarly, um, the last like full level in the in the game, and therefore of the trilogy, is like perfect, like pure Hitman, and it feels like a classic. Like it's set in a vineyard, and there's like. Uh, every different side of a hitman level you'd expect from like a secluded secure location an open party a big social environment a secret kind of more like a deeper more industrial area and it feels like a swan song for like the entire series like and probably not just not just this trilogy but going all the way back to the beginning like it feels like this kind of bow being tied on the top of the thing and i don't know if, if i doubt that they'll probably add things to this game or an elusive targets and so on um, but given that I was moving on to doing this James Bond game, I do kind of, um, there is something quite, yeah, I don't want to say moving necessarily, but there was something quite affecting about kind of having that slow dawning realization, getting to the end of it and going like, oh, fuck, this is actually like, this is, it feels quite significant. This feels like quite a significant achievement. And I think the only thing that has really let that down is this move to Epic. Um, and the fact that your ownership of those games on on Steam doesn't transfer yet undermines, I think, what would be the kind of like final kind of crowning achievement of this, which is that feeling when you look back through the mission menu and there's just this swathe of like incredible individual missions that I feel like I can't really think of the last time a AAA game, which this is, had like that breadth of consistent quality and achievement across a lot of content you know like where like it feels now like this huge kind of um playpen full of little experiences to have because i've i'm now getting i'm now i'm now at the stage where i'm digging into the micro scale getting lost in individual levels and it's almost kind of gives me a bit of kind of the kind of <clears throat> the too much to do FOMO when I think about the whole span of it and just how much there is to potentially dig into. Yeah. Um, it's really kind of an extraordinary thing. Yeah, I'm kind of frightened about just how big it is because I didn't play very much of two. So I feel like I'm going to have a lot to catch up on because I the would, levels, yeah. I, don't, I find them, I think your technique of playing the levels is is dead on that you kind of, you follow the storyline, the one that kind of leads you along to start with, but then that's just your introduction to kind of exploring all the stuff that you can do and see and the techniques you can try and whatever. Yeah. But you know, there's just so much to do in every single thing. There's, there is. And like, I, I would really recommend playing through the whole thing. I know some people because of the epic exclusive, they end up starting with three. I think if you have the choice, start with one, partly because Paris, the first level is like one of the best levels they've ever made anyway, but also the, because that, is that the, the fashion show one? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but also because like, I, I genuinely came to enjoy, like the story is like, you know, born adjacent thriller kind of, uh, kind of, you know, thriller times a hundred at a certain point, but I did actually enjoy it. And I did, um, the cutscenes are really stylish. The location reveals are really amazing. And like, it feels like a big journey from start to finish. And I think by the time you get to three, the plot is probably impenetrable. So like, it's worth starting at the beginning. Yeah. And I, I would also say that like their sense of the, this one does a really good job of like having a moment 
and I think each environment where you step in and kind of take in the place and there's a level in China where it just gave me the full on like god I miss traveling like clumped <laughs> sort of <laughs> heavy feeling of like fuck I miss this and that's like you know that's something kind of special for a game to be able to set that off I, I really do um I really do enjoy it a lot despite its occasional jank and kind of wobbliness like you know it supports given that i'm someone who is my cool fugues have been exclusively spent within mmos recently it takes quite a lot to pull me away to a game where i can just sort of switch it on for a bit and feel like i've had some fun and then switch it off again most triple a games don't support that because they're either campaigns that you're one and done with or they're kind of endless you know tick off the to-do list grinds um that feel maybe less meaningful whatever that means than time spent in a more more explicitly progression-based game and this like what i'll do with hitman now is if i have 20 minutes i will load it up i will take a run at a level and just refuse to quick save and just see how it goes and maybe have a vague idea of some achievement i'd like to try or some kind of method i'd like to try and it's 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 really fun it's it's a really interesting way to kind of re-engage with something that you know well. Like it's rare that any game gets better the more the, the better you know it, and this is one of them. Um, there's a way of doing the first mission that I won't spoil, but it allows you to functionally doom both targets and then be miles away when that doom is manifest. And I've just been working on getting the setup and execution of that as smooth as possible, so that by the time it all kicks off. I'm like back downstairs at the party, like sipping a margarita. I would be sipping a margarita, like just in my suit, like completely like normal. And then just walk out of the level. And it's the coolest thing. It's the coolest <laughs> thing. I think it was, was it that first level that people were speed running? And I think someone completed it in seven seconds. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to see how that is done actually now that I know it quite well. Like, uh, my best is three minutes, um, which was messy but really fun because it just involved starting in a particular disguise climbing up one ladder and then like the first ostensibly like super secure target just happens to be leaning against a particular balcony and he's there for like a minute at the start of the level then he moves forever and i kind of like that in that one particular version of events agent 47 just emerges from a cupboard dressed as a just as a like backstage technician pushes a guy off a balcony and just leaves like <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's yeah, it's it's dead good. I need to play it. I've got it installed. I'm definitely going to sink some time into it over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, that first run I did didn't take me more than like six or seven hours. I don't think because, like I say, it's you know, it's only five quote unquote full levels. Um, yeah, really thoroughly recommend it definitely my first kind of big kind of win of this year and also i think genuinely if people have missed out on it so far a big treat a big treat waiting to be slowly walked around and have things thrown at it it's also it comes back to the thing we said earlier as well about games which have been produced well because the fact that it's um five full levels um i'm pretty sure that's because for the previous two games that's how many levels io interactive made and then there was always one level that they farmed out to sumo digital right oh god i didn't know that so colorado in the first game and columbia in the second game were made by 
Sumo Digital instead of by IO Interactive. And this time around, they didn't do that. So I think mm. IO Interactive basically made as many levels as they did it's, the previous two times. It's what they can make, yeah. Yeah, mm. within a time frame, within a budget. And, you know, they deliver it very well. Yeah, it's such a good swan song for them. Like, the amount of, like, original... I would love to see if anyone's done any coverage of like the process they go through to design like architecture art exhibits like there's so much in universe yeah. but invented art and, and architecture in that game that's like yeah. both believable and always like pointed in some way right yeah. like it's it feels like you know the like no one else is doing parodies of corporate art like they are right yeah, and then letting so you incinerate annoying. people with them <laughs> like yeah yeah, so good. Shall we do questions from questions? Yeah, we've got some meaty ones this week, but we'll start with a plug from Plugs. Kane writes, hello. The results of the CNC Discord Community 2020 Game of the Year voting have been tabulated and retabulated and are now online. We've got a link in the show notes. Like last year, voters were able to submit short reviews of their selections, which can be shown by clicking each game's reviews link, making this page one of the most concentrated hot take repositories on the internet. Uh to to exploit a loophole and turn this shill into a question uh what was your favorite gloat of 2020 regards kane i can't really recall i probably did there's probably a recording was there any gloating? god i don't know um i grew my hair real long and just sort of like to flap it around that probably counts i bought a really nice coat i couldn't afford yeah <laughs> And I literally couldn't go anywhere with it. <laughs> so, <laughs> completely pointless. I I got a book published during the last year. Um, oh, wait till uh, one of come all on. of us. And it come didn't on. do really badly. It, well done, man. It sold okay. Nice. Well done, Alex. Congratulations, that's awesome. I, d- I did lots of running in 2020. My longest run was 16 kilometers. Whoa. Nice. Ow. I just did lots of walking and ate spinach but i did manage to lose 30 pounds so yeah good old spinach yeah good old spinach and let's 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 talk about what the games of 2020 were according to our community the top 11 are factorio Mm. we don't have we don't have a ton of time here so let's 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 respond to each of these choices with a noise let's honor our community with our grunts factorio (laughs) cool in number 10 death stranding in number nine, a monster's expedition through puzzling exhibitions. It's a pip. In number eight, Cyberpunk 2077. In number seven, The Outer Wilds. Mm. Well, mm. Uh, oh, hang on. Which one is this? <laughs> Which one? It's not the Outer Worlds. It's the uh, Obsidian Obsidian. In the Outer Worlds. Outer Worlds. Okay. W- Wilds is the indie space oh, hang on. one. It's when not you, the Obsidian. It's the good one. Yeah. Oh, it's the there's good one. A, yeah. The, uh, there's an Easter egg on this where occasionally it will change to worlds. Like, <laughs> and so I'm. Oh, fuck it. Number six, Disco Elysium. Oh. Hey. That's good and hard at the same time. Um, in number five, Animal Crossing: New Horizons. Yeah. <sighs> in number four, Half-Life: Alex. Whee! 
Yeah. <laughs> and number three, Crusader Kings three. Oh, I, <laughs> fucking hell. <Monks>. Come on. <laughs> and number two, Spelunky two. Whee. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> and in number one, or first place as it's also called, Hades. Yeah. <sighs> oh, there was a, a sigh there that needs exploring. Is that no, you know? exp- <laughs> oh, That's my. a pretty good crop, man. I'd forgotten what came out last year, despite us all I think a lot of them but... didn't come out last year, but that's fine. Oh, that's true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah, they're always... uh, Daniel writes... Uh, Crate and Conquer, why do you think some digital game retailers use the term get on their purchase buttons instead of buy or purchase, etc.? My theory is that it's because get makes you immediately think of ownership, while buy, purchase, and add to cart make you think about having to pay for the item first. What are your thoughts, Daniel from Iowa? Thank you for this question. For copywriters everywhere, and those of us who have to think the words call to action more than once in a day. Um, (laughs) But there is an answer to this, and I think Alex knows it. The answer is, it's one uh kind of call to action that has to stand for both free things things you don't pay for when you go through the process and things that you do pay for so get is a it's an it's awkward it's an awkward and ugly way of doing it but that's the seems to be the Mm. industry standard they could be more creative with this it could just be like stuff in your bag (laughs) have it have Have it it. put it in your pouch (laughs) eat tuck it away tuck it away (laughs) exactly nom 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 um yeah append this to your being salve your soul foster adopt jam inside adopt is good (laughs) access fugue state (laughs) become attached to join fandom exactly wasn't like star get a victory statement in super mm. mario 64 yeah. yeah so maybe there's a conspiracy here let's let's keep going so actually i can't we can't maintain that tone into the next question because it's a very good question and a very serious one so oh no that's me spinning the takes train um it's a, you can't spin a train fuck uh christian writes uh and i'm gonna have to truncate this it's a long email but uh christian writes a very uh thoughtful uh response to our kind of I think, and, and and I have to own part of this, my kind of fairly hasty takes on machine games in the last episode, but re their suitability to take on the more, uh, well, the Nazi element of Indiana Jones and some of Indiana Jones's um, broader issues. Um, that was based on my kind of rose-tinted view of uh, a new order, uh, the new order particularly. Um, but Christian writes uh, appropriately that the, uh, well, I'll quote directly, um, sort of basically the experience of going back to the game, playing it through with, with his partner and finding that, in, in his words, things I remembered as progressive were clumsy pastiche lifted directly out of movies, or there were actual bits of horrifying history stripped of context and used as edgy set dressing. He goes on to say, uh, to describe the game as massively anti-Semitic. My partner, he writes, is Jewish and offered perspective on things I would never have picked up on, such as misrepresentation of uh, Jewish theology and completely broken Hebrew, the plot MacGuffin that powers the Nazi super technology is literal international Jewish cabal guarding what may as well be ancient alien technology. Um, 
uh, and he concludes, as such, uh, at its best, the plot is an uninspired mix of Inglorious Bastards and Iron Sky with a drizzle of Hostel. At its worst, it's deeply insensitive misrepresentation and an earned use of atrocity and trauma to motivate our big, milky meat protagonist. As such, I suppose Machine Games is a perfect fit for Indiana Jones, but not for the reasons that people think. He sent a subsequent email uh, kind of mentioning that he, he wrote this, and I think it's all spot on, honestly. And I kind of uh, I appreciate it having been sent because it made me reassess kind of my memory of that game um but he did send a follow-up email to say that he'd written it midway through listening and that obviously we did talk about um the issues of its representation of, of jewish quote-unquote like made-up technology um particularly um but his question i think is an interesting one um Apologies for the long rant. I mostly wanted to share a perspective with you that had been lost on myself. If I were to put this rant in the form of a question, it would be, have you ever pitched a fun piece of media to a friend or partner and then been embarrassed by your own failure to reassess your stance on a thing you liked seven years ago? Um, I have had exactly this experience and the time gap may have even been exactly the same when I thought it would be fun to introduce Pip to something I liked once upon a time, Scott Pilgrim. Um, <laughs> Which was uh, very much this experience, and I think because the anime, the um, um, arcade game got re-released recently to make this relevant, I had this experience of thinking about this again. Um, holy shit, Scott Pilgrim doesn't show, doesn't hold up at all. <laughs> like ten ish years later, you're talking about both, the comic, honestly. Or the film? Like because mm. it's like it's a st- it's a story about I don't I'm going to someone's going to at me. I'm going to get I can feel it. I can feel the ats are coming. Uh, to, to quote Frasier, um, the <laughs> like, um, but it's fundamentally a story about a kind of pouty and pretty entitled and self-absorbed white dude who has to fight a series of battles um, in order to acquire women, plural, um, as if it were a game. And <laughs> while he goes on a personal journey of becoming less of a shit, it's not actually that fun a ride to watch someone become a shit, less of a shit through an extremely tortured and complicated process. When in real life, you should really just become less of a shit off your own steam as swiftly and with minimal intervention. <laughs> like, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't stand up to me at all. Yeah. Which is a shame because I love Edgar Wright movies and I think it's a very stylish film, but just something about it feels deeply rooted in its time now. See, like my answer is going to be actually very similar, um, and that I was going to say High Fidelity, specifically the '99 John Cusack movie High Fidelity, which is pretty similar to to Scott Pilgrim actually, in that it's kind of about John Cusack's character over the course of the film becoming less of a shit by visiting all of his ex girlfriends who dumped him and asking them why they dumped him. <laughs> um, uh, and they, they they dumped him because he's an awful person. And uh, but you know I like John Cusack and I like John Cusack movies and it's got you know a fun Jack Black performance in one of his earliest roles and it's got a good soundtrack and that sort of stuff and that's what I remembered from it until I I watched it. This was years ago now. Um, I watched it with Lisa and saw it through her eyes and she saw it through her eyes. Hopefully. Um, yeah and it's like this is a film where he goes and and meets um, women who dumped him and they reveal that they didn't dump him he dumped them but he's self-involved enough that he's like 
recast his own memories of the situation so he's the victim of the stories uh and, mm. and, and he does become a better person by the end of the film um but it's a marginal improvement and you feel bad for the woman who ends up with him yeah <laughs> i do like john cusack though he's very charming well, that's kind of what tricks you i think tricks you into mm. liking it maybe any other confessions for this confessional I mean, this is kind of a little bit milder and i'm i did play it wondering like if I feel like this now, how is it going to feel kind of in the future? I played the Uncharted earlier in Uncharted films, games, films, <laughs> games, <laughs> um, uh, recently, and I mean there, there was always that sort of argument about kind of how many people you kill, um, but the kind of the general um, going to foreign countries and smashing up their ruins thing, um, I think it. I think it gets increasingly aware of sort of that aspect of it. But I do wonder, yeah, I I couldn't quite put my finger on precisely the thing that kind of made me question it, but I'm wondering how well it'll play 10 years, you know, five years, 10 years. It's, um, it it is at the very end of that process, that, that kind of series of kind of white man, white Western man goes on, a kind of a pillaging adventure and yeah, yeah. Uh, it's increasingly not on it's just increasingly like uncomfortable to see it uncritically presented i think and those stories are less interesting because yeah. more interesting stories well talk. they're kind of careful it's quite they kind of you can see where they've got, they're aware of it because they're careful to usually situate the destruction in the act mm. of the baddies but usually you're the instigator of going there in the first yeah. place. You know, oh, i got to find my dad. Or, oh, where's my dad? I've got oh, a magic no. map. I've got to find yeah. my dad. <laughs> All games. Um, the So I think to maybe, I feel it's such a big subject and we're kind of racing through it. But there's, to I think that one of the questions here that kind of unifies these things is like one of framing. And it's one of the reasons why it's so important to get more diverse protagonists into pop culture generally and mm. games as part of that is that like all of these things from from wolfenstein they kind of i do agree with with christian's uh, take on it i think the thing that makes wolfenstein resonate fondly for me in my head is that bj blaskovitz is this sort of bizarre mix of hyper violent terminator and sort of folksy kind of you know like 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 regular joe who just wants a cup of coffee and there's something charming about that in isolation even though i agree that there, there, are, there are some pretty shocking issues with the the the, fra- the context around that but the question you got to ask is if that is going to be the context why is your story got to be rooted in the experiences of the world's biggest beefiest boy and uh similarly you know why does nathan why does the entire story need to be told to you guys nathan drake necessarily if that's where you're going similarly um you know to tie this into the movies we were talking about like it's that centralizing of a particular kind of of experience that just feels so kind of worn out now and like it's something i like about hitman for all of its type of violence and occasional often frequent grotesquerie that 47 while definitely still a very white dude in in the lead is such a fucking weird character in that he has motivations yeah. and doesn't and isn't isn't sort of fully realized and there's probably tons to say about that but i think it's one of the things that keeps its head above water i think hitman would be in this camp if it starred jason Bourne, for example or james bond indeed and that's going to be the challenge for them next <laughs> um when their murder man is ostensibly also a kind of 
a horny human. When murdered men become horny humans. Uh, thank you for coming to my TED talk. Um, <laughs> I was going to um, I, I was going to mention uh, everything Stephen Moffat has ever done. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> and um, uh, this is all stuff that I greatly enjoyed when I watched it, like coupling, um, and like his brilliant Doctor Who episodes, and then he directed Doctor Who. Uh, there comes a point where like he's sitting down and it, and uh, your sort of your partner points out it's like all the women are just. I was about. <laughs> I was about to say panic mixy dream worlds. What I mean is, <laughs> yep, <laughs> manic pixie dream girls, uh, which has become a thing. That also, like I've noticed in, uh, I've been reading Sandman recently by Neil Gaiman, which is amazing in many mm. respects, but also massively guilty of a particular women being sort of filed into a particularly narrow type of character um, that actually robs them of a lot of, you know, complexity or agency. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, the announcement of the Sandman Netflix series, like, mm. I I loved that series so much when I was 20, and I am terrified to return to it, because yeah. I loved it so much, and I now kind of can see all of the ways that, like, of course, as a very one goth-adjacent literature <laughs> student, of course I fucking loved it, because it was centering a particular experience that was important to me, but I'm a bit nervous about seeing it brought to life. I hope, I would be delighted if it stands up, I really hope it does. I think there's a, there's a lot there that would be that could be brilliant. I think seeing how Watchmen has been adapted for television kind of gives me some hope, even mm. though it's a completely different team. Um, but I think the thing I've I've been reading the first volume of Sandman uh, very recently actually, and it's embarrassing how much of a self insert Neil Gaiman is as Morpheus. <laughs> and yeah. I get this from a lot of like Kieran Gillen comics as well, um, where it's, it, the artist just draws. The writer, <laughs> like what? Mm. Uh, what are you doing? And yeah, are you this? You're not that mysterious or deep or interesting. Um, I don't know. I just find it to be like an exercise, an egotistical exercise. In that respect, I would say that like um, I don't, I don't wholly disagree. But in Kieran's more recent defence, he doesn't look anything like Marnie as Calgar, Chapter Master of the Ultramarine. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite true. It's quite true. <laughs> It's great to see you. <laughs> Unless lockdown has changed him, in which case. <laughs> and he's fucking beefcake now. Exactly. He's um, huge hands. He's got such big hands. So glad um, he's writing Warhammer. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's the thing. I think, I, honestly, I think... Um, oh, bang on about this river. But yeah, I think I think that's that sort of... Um, it's just that focal. It's just that focal point. It's who you choose as your protagonist, and I think it's something that ages a lot of comics from the nineties mm. and noughties. Actually, is um, is the almost inevitability of that kind of centric <coughs> white dude. Um, the most interesting thing they could do with Morpheus, I think, in Sandman, is go with this, the way he's currently occasionally stylized in the comic, and not make him white. Make him literally like he doesn't have ink in the comic. He's just an outline. Just transparent. Um, he's, he's the white of the page. So, like, if you could mm. just see, I don't know, like the film stock or your TV behind him, then that would work. But um, I also think, like, the, yeah. like death as well as a character is also fitting into a lot of pretty, yeah, um, yeah, uh, stereotypes. That I thought it was yeah. interesting that they didn't announce the casting for death because I think that's the one where, like, the success of the show for me is how they recast what you expect that character to be. Yeah, like I think if yeah. they just do, like, you know. Uh, uh, 
beautiful goth lady who tells you nice things as you die, then it'll just, it, yeah, so it's a huge missed opportunity. Yeah. Uh, um, but yes, yeah, thank you to Christian for his thoughtful email and because yeah, I yep, yeah, I need to go I, educate I, myself. I, I feel appropriate <laughs> shame for my words and deeds. Um, Michael writes, "Hi." No questions here. Just want to point out that the movie Tom S mentions when talking about how stupid Nazis are, Men Who Stares at Goats, is based on MKUltra, which was the US's attempt at absorbing some of said Nazi experiments into the stupid and continuously funding it. Might be something you guys know already. Just wanted to say the stupidity of the movie and the Nazis aren't entirely disconnected. Thanks for the podcast. As always, big smiley face, Michael. Uh, yeah, I'd like to say I, I did know that, but I've just failed to mention it utterly. And thank you for pointing it out because that is a big reason. That's the whole point of where the movie was made, I think, to draw those parallels. They play it for laughs, which is an interesting, mm. interesting thing. You've got to be able to see the absurd in, in the awful, I think. The difference between those experiments and the Nazi experiments was that, you know, there were, people were killed in one of them and not so much yeah. in the other one. And uh, the, like equating them, like, I think it's, it's, it's correct to draw a through line, a logical through line between, and it, like a, a historically correct through line from the experiments that the Nazis were doing and this. But um, I, I think the film does a good job of not like equating it directly in the sense that it's, it's not as heavy and it's allowed to be funnier because uh, it doesn't have those terrible consequences attached to it. It's just a man just sort of bumps his nose on a wall or something <laughs> instead of a society turning into a horrible machine that kills people. Mm. That's uh, all of the time and and questions and energy and uh, few we've got time for this evening. If you would like to send us a question for a future episode of the podcast, you can do so by emailing us at questions at createandcrowbar.com. You can also tweet us at create and crowbar. You can find this episode and others like it on our YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash create and crowbar. And you can see Marsh reach out wholeheartedly to a younger generation on tiktok.com forward slash create and crowbar. Uh, if you would like to support endeavors like that and this, um, you can find out more about supporting the podcast at patreon.com forward slash create and crowbar. And our community uh, can be found, can be located on Discord, the link for which is on our website at create and crowbar.com. I think that's all of the things. I think that went quite well. I completed all of the things. Yeah, that's all achievements unlocked for me. I shall now parachute off the side of the podcast to victory. Uh, I have been. <laughs> Uh, Chris Thurston I've been Alex Wiltshire I have been Graham Smith uh, and I'm Tom Senior <laughs> <laughs> you still are exactly like, uh, one of us still is still um, <laughs> that's thanks for listening everybody, everybody. Bye -bye. Bye -bye. Uh, I nearly forgot to say it <laughs>